This is Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Hey, fellow spiritual beings, it's Mark. And this is Kelly with Radical Love Live. This is a recording of our second live episode on February 23rd, 2020 at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. Our guests were educator and activist Alicia T. Crosby, journalist and author Jonathan Merritt, with music by soprano Jamette Pittman and guitarist and singer-songwriter Tash Neal. The theme of the evening was marginalization and wilderness. Lord, how come me here? Lord, how come me here? Lord, how come me here? I wish I never was born. They treat me so mean here, Lord. They treat me so mean here. They treat me so mean here. I wish I Never was born. There's so much chilling away, Lord. There's so much chilling away. There's so much chilling away. I wish I. Thank you, Jeanette. That was Jeanette Pittman, everyone. And All right, so welcome to the second live event of Radical Love Live. I am Mark Delcom, co-host of tonight's event, along with my awesome co-creator, Kelly Wilson. Tonight's uh, episode is being streamed live on Facebook and on our website, Radical Love dot live. And hi, mom. I'm sure she's watching. I'm really excited about tonight. We have four amazing guests with us. Alicia Crosby, Jonathan Merritt, Tosh Neal, and of course, Jamet, who just sang. Alicia and Jonathan were, are each going to share their wisdom about tonight's topic, followed by a question and answer session with Kelly and me. 
Jamet and Tosh uh, will be singing and playing music that resonates with tonight's topic. At the conclusion of tonight's event, I will introduce a musical meditation that Tosh is going to perform for us uh, that's going to reflect on the evening. So why Radical Love Live? Well, Kelly and I described the mission of Radical Love Live as exploring spirituality outside the boxes. And it made sense to include everyone in the exploration by live streaming our Sunday night events. So again, welcome to everybody that's watching online. We're also using technology during tonight's event to allow everyone with a mobile phone to text us and be part of the conversation. All you need to do is to text Radical Love 222 and your question to the short code number 22333. Now for those that are here, that's all in your program. For those that are watching online, that again is Radical Love 222 with your question and you're gonna send it to short code 22333. Please also consider using your mobile phone to make a $25 donation to help with the production uh, for tonight's event. All you need to do is text the word blessing, that's B-L-E-S-S-I-N-G, to 52000, and your generous donation will be automatically added to your mobile phone bill. Tonight's topic is marginalization and wilderness. These words carry a tremendous amount of angst, despair, uncertainty, and confusion when applied to religious institutions, faith traditions, and spirituality. My description of marginalization in this context is when a person's innate identity and wholeness is diminished by certain organizations, people who hold power, and even more shockingly, by some in pulpits who proclaim what is holy, sacred, and good, or what is unholy, profane, and wrong. When certainty is pronounced for whatever reason and by whatever means, many are damaged, traumatized, and shamed for simply being who they are. Some remain trapped in these abusive relationships, and while most eventually escape, almost all leave with a broken spirit. Which brings us to the other word of tonight's topic, wilderness. One can find multiple uses of this word in the Tanakh, which of course is the Hebrew Bible. For Christians, it can be found both in the Old and New Testaments. It can also be found in Buddhism and in Islam. In fact, I doubt there are any faith traditions or philosophies that doesn't have some form of wilderness. Of course, there are those who go into wilderness intentionally and even literally, such as our desert mothers and fathers who explored their spirituality outside of the box to deepen their relationship with the divine. However, I view wilderness much like marginalization, where most of those who are in wilderness are pushed into it either by being ostracized or cast out by a community, either physically or spiritually. This is my story. While I don't label myself as a victim, I came to realize I was both marginalized and in the wilderness as I began to examine why I hurt existentially. My eyes were opened when I discovered my hurt was tied to the shame I took on as a kid for simply being who I am. For decades, I had no clue why I lived with the brokenness that denied me my own wholeness, which in 
turn prevented me to love myself as I am and to love others fully as they are. Thankfully today, I live with profound gratitude. I am no longer marginalized and forced to exist in the wilderness of my spirituality. Most significantly, I also possess the desire and the energy to help others to reconnect to their own wholeness and in their hurt, which is why Radical Love Live was created. I live with an inexhaustible belief that during these dark, uncertain times of human spirituality, love will conquer all. So with that, thank you very much for being here tonight, supporting Radical Love Live, and now, Kelly Wilson. I'm Kelly Wilson, co-creator of Radical Love Live. And the theme of today's program, as Mark said, is marginalization and wilderness. Yet here I am, a white, middle-class, college-educated, cisgendered man in a heteronormative marriage, and I work in a mainline church. And you might ask what I can add to a conversation about, about marginalization and wilderness. And you'd be right to ask that in many ways, the Western world was built for me. At various times in my life, my questioning of religious dogma did distance me from the tradition that I was in so that I did end up in a kind of wilderness. But no matter what my heresies were, I was always welcomed back into those spaces. And I know that for many, including many that are listening today, it's been much, much worse. When institutions define themselves by what they are against, there's always an other who is pushed out or left by the wayside. As I look at my own tradition of Christianity, how well we love those that we call other is at the very core of what we're expected to do from the Samaritans and lepers and the poor that we hear about in Bible stories to enslaved people people of color, women and people of all genders, lesbian, gay, and queer people, immigrants, people of other faith traditions, and people who can't bring themselves to believe in any religion at all. Institutions that define themselves versus the other often don't acknowledge the fact that many of those others are sitting right here in the chairs with us or walking by the sidewalk outside looking at the welcome sign and wondering, how could that possibly be true? It would be easy to say that as a moderate liberal, at least I'm not part of the problem. But just believing is only a start. As we've been warned by many teachers and prophets over the years, being passively nice pretends that only evil people are racist, that only evil people are homophobic, that only evil people are exclusionary, and it ignores the structures themselves that are leaving people out, structures that many of us benefit from no matter how nice we are. So I believe the task of those, that who, the task of those who would create and maintain sacred spaces is to actively work to dismantle those systems and heresies that keep people away from community and connecting with their spirituality. And I believe that the task of a person who has benefited from those systems is to work to radically welcome others in from the wilderness. 
and not just because they agree to assimilate into the status quo, but because they're fully loved for their individual beauty, created as they are in the image of God. There are three important ways that people like me can turn their energies to inclusion and welcome. The first is educating ourselves. It is not up to black people to educate white people about racism. It is not up to queer people to educate straight people about sexuality. If we are committed to the holy work of radical welcome, we must seek out other stories than the ones that we have been taught. Educating ourselves involves real, sometimes uncomfortable listening that is focused on understanding and not defending. It is only in this way that we can begin to see others as the people they are. And if we don't strive to understand the truths of the people we welcome, we see what happens. Those people walk away. The second way to build radical welcome is speaking truths. When we don't name truths we have learned, we can continue to invent our own narratives, whether they're true or not. When we try to approach the world as colorblind or pretend opportunity is the same for everyone, we're missing the chance to bring the fullness of life to someone who is oppressed. When we try to establish norms around sexuality based on myth and tradition without acknowledging the very real people in their diverse expressions in our own families, in our own churches, in our own communities, we miss the opportunity to love and dignify people as themselves. When we try to make generalizations about other religious groups without reading their holy books, when we make pronouncements about immigrants without studying their history, we are missing the opportunity to show love to them too. Once we learn the truth about these things, it is time to speak them out. And finally, the third is amplifying the voices of the marginalized. Hollywood movies are rightly criticized for the trope of the white savior who saves the day, and the world doesn't need that. What it needs is for those with a platform to use it to lift up the voices of the unheard so that they can speak for themselves. It can be a big gesture, like a program like this, or a small one, like speaking up for someone who gets interrupted in a meeting and say, hey, let's hear what they have to say. It means giving a voice in places where the marginalized have no voice. Making those arguments to those on the other side. Explaining how traditions have been misused as a weapon of exclusion. And patiently having those uncomfortable conversations at our kitchen tables and on our social media feeds. In an age as deeply polarized as ours, I don't know that I'll see the results of this work. It's rare that I have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone and hear them say, oh yes, you've changed my mind from my deeply held beliefs and now I'm going to go a different way. But over time, I hope that those words land somewhere and like drops of water, if enough of them land, that the ensuing flood will help to change the tide. Thank you.
today, we're glad to talk with speakers who are using their skills and talents that God gave them to shed light on injustice and to continue to apply pressure to the systems that keep so many from leading an authentic, spiritually fulfilled experience. One of those is Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan serves as a contributing writer for The Atlantic, a contributing editor for The Week, and is author of several critically acclaimed books, including Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing, and How We Can Revive Them. Jonathan has an unflinching approach to speaking truths and shedding light on injustice when he sees it. Welcome, Jonathan. Well, grace and peace to you in the name of a God who loves and lives on the margins. You know, a few years ago, um, a friend of mine who's, who fancies himself something of a, of a social justice activist asked me if I wanted to go to prison with him. And I responded, I love you, but I'm not getting arrested for you. And he said, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't want you to go to jail for me. I want you to go to jail with me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I want you to visit a jail with me. I think you need to see what happens inside these places. And I agreed. A few months later, I flew down to Nashville, Tennessee, and I drove out to Riverbend Maximum Security Institution, opened in 1989. It sits on 132 acres of land, more than 300,000 square feet, and it holds 748 mostly male convicts. Nearly 500 of them are classified as high risk, and this happens to be the institution where the state of Tennessee houses all of its inmates who are currently sitting on death row and awaiting execution. In fact, that's why we were there. We were there to look men in the eyes, men who were not long for this world if the system worked the way that it was supposed to, to ask these men questions and to learn from them. I can still remember the feeling I got when I was passing through an elaborate set of security screenings and metal detectors, locked doors and physical body searches. I remember what happened when that final set of doors opened up and my friend and I entered the courtyard and he stopped and he pointed to this bleak, tannish building and he told me that's where the state's electric chair and lethal injection chamber were. And I could imagine people who walked into there and didn't walk out. For more than an hour, we sat in a room with men in chains who live on the far edges of the margins of society. They are forgotten by most of us. They're stuck in a racist, unjust system. In fact, they're stuck in a system that is designed in every way to literally de- humanize them. There was a recent story, I don't know if you read it in Newsweek magazine, that reported on the practices of some of our nation's prisons. They centered in on one prison in West Virginia. And this prison in the story 
It said that inmates there were allowed to read e-books on tablets, which sounds pretty great, that is, until you learn that these tablets cost the inmates five cents per minute, for, per minute to rent. Well, these prisoners, where do they get their money? They get their money from working in the prison where they are paid between four cents and 58 cents per hour for their labor. You do the math. Like so many on the margins, our justice system is perfectly designed to dehumanize the humans that it's responsible for. It does not rehabilitate, it humiliates. And sitting with these men and listening to their stories and listening to their wisdom, I, I felt God's presence in a way that I, I, I have never quite felt God's presence before. I felt it in a way, I don't feel it in fancy Manhattan restaurants, in beach resorts, sitting in a Barnes and Noble, sipping lattes. The men that I met there taught me more than in an hour than I normally learn in a week. As one of Kurt Vonnegut's characters says in Player Piano, out on the edge you can see all kinds of things you can't see from the center. Those men, their presence made me think of the Hebrew people who were enslaved by the Egyptians. I thought of Moses on the run for committing an act of murder. I thought of Tamar and Hagar and Naaman and the woman at the well and the convicts hanging on the cross next to Jesus. You know, I was raised uh, in the evangelical tradition as a Southern Baptist, and when I moved to New York City nearly seven years ago, I traded in that tradition for an expression of faith with a more liturgical bent. The church I go to now, we follow the church calendar. We teach from the lectionary. And if you know a little something about this way of being Christian, you might know that today in churches like ours, it's Transfiguration Sunday. And the lectionary for today offers us a strange story in Exodus 24 where Moses, the leader of the people of Israel, is invited by God to climb this holy mountain, to enter into a great and mysterious cloud of God's presence. Just before this story, if you turn back a page or so, you'll find that Moses and the people are gathered in the wilderness and that Moses enacts a blood ritual to seal a covenant between God and the Hebrew people. The terms of this covenant are outlined in part through a set of laws and commands. God has written these down on stone tablets that God gives to Moses on the mountain. Now, if you read uh, the commentaries, if you're the kind of person who does that, you'll find that they wrestle with the strangeness of this text, replete with all sorts of flexible and colorful imagery woven throughout. But from a 30,000-foot view, for the purposes of our time together, we can understand what's going on in Exodus 24 in simple terms. It is a clarion sign that Yahweh is a God whose love and life concentrates itself not within the power centers of society, but among the poor and powerless who reside on the margins in the wilderness. When we meet the Hebrew people in the wilderness in Exodus 24, they've just come from a seemingly eternal period of slavery in Egypt, where Pharaoh and his minions have worked hard to keep the people on the social periphery. 
The Egyptians oppress the Hebrew people. They abuse the Hebrew people. They mistreat the Hebrew people. They dehumanize the Hebrew people, all in order to protect their wealth, their system, their unchallenged political power. When the Hebrew people swell in strength, well, they increase their workload so they can break their will. When the Hebrew people grow in number, Pharaoh commands the midwives to murder all the male infants upon birth. After all, marginalization is only possible so long as power is disproportionately concentrated among those at the center. But God, two of my favorite words that you read in all the text, both Old Testament and New, but God. Some of the most beautiful words we can speak, but God sweeps in to snap the chains of oppression and marginalization fastened to this slave tribe by pagan Egyptian oppressors. And this spectacular act is such a radical display of the divine alignment with the less-thens and the have-nots that the tale was retold by the Hebrews' descendants again and again from generation to generation until, well, until it comes to us right here. Now, to make sure that we don't miss the point, God in this story handpicks a leader to serve as a kind of a exclamation point on the end of the message of the story. Moses, a Hebrew slave with an Egyptian name who was raised by Pharaoh's family, he is an outsider who was raised as an insider. But then Moses murders an Egyptian, beating a Hebrew slave. Maybe you remember this story. He perhaps does it out of a kind of survivor's guilt. For this, for this crime, he must flee to the wilderness as a criminal. And there he marries the daughter of a pagan priest, which is not something the Hebrews did, generally speaking. They have a child. They have a child interestingly named Gershom, which means I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And so an outsider marries an outsider, gives birth to an outsider, and after Moses the outsider does this, God calls him to return home and free the enslaved outsiders from the tyranny of the insiders. So when we meet Moses and the Hebrew people making a covenant with God in Exodus 24, this is the story that we're in the middle of. And it it culminates with a special covenant that God makes with this nomadic people who own no land, who possess very little wealth, and yet God chooses them. And it is this choice that defines the way that God sees God's self. When Moses is given the law, God begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and, in to the, and out of the land of slavery. It is like Yahweh begins the conversation by handing out a business card that says, I am Yahweh, liberator of the enslaved, friend to the friendless, breaker of chains. To contact me, look to the margins. Now, this story has outside influence in the Hebrew Bible, but we could, we could certainly tell others. We could tell the story of Hagar, a triple outsider, a slave, a woman, and a pagan person from outside of Abraham's clan. Yet Hagar receives one of the most profound honors in the entire biblical narrative. She names God. 
Genesis 16, 13, and Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, El Roihi, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me, she says. I could tell you the story of Tamar, a Canaanite woman, who represents all of those who are never allowed to be in the familial fold. Think about the people who secretly pray to God that their son or their daughter will never marry a fill-in-the-blank. Well, Tamar, Tamar's the fill-in-the-blank. Tamar is the tale of a woman who is nearly squashed under the oppressive weight of misogyny, a sin we have sadly not shed in subsequent millennia, but Tamar fights back, throwing off social constraints to oppose the prevailing powers and secure her future. And in that way, she aligns her heart with Yahweh's and ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. We could list a plethora of examples in the Hebrew text, but we could also look at the Second Testament. You might not be surprised to find this, team, this theme continues there as well. You meet a Roman centurion, an outsider insofar as first century Jews are concerned, who is described as having greater faith than all of Israel. Or you meet a Samaritan woman who engages with Jesus in one of the longest dialogues with anyone in the New Testament. Or Zacchaeus, a marginalized tax collector who the gospel are interesting tells us was prevented from seeing Jesus because of the crowd. And what of Jesus himself, the one who serves as an archetypal pattern of God's presence and movement among mortals. The first people given the honor of worshiping the newborn Christ were a group of shepherds economic outsiders, and pagan astrologers, the magi, religious and ethnic outsiders. And this sets the trajectory of Jesus's entire life. Jesus chooses his disciples, a ragtag group of uneducated disciples to be his closest confidants who are seemingly always on an adventure in missing the point. And in one of their most interestingly di- interesting dialogues, they argue about who can sit at the left and right hand of Jesus. But Jesus chooses none of them. Instead, he stretches out his arms while he's hanging on a cross at Golgotha, and he gives those spots to two convicts. And one of those criminals teaches us one of the most powerful lessons of all, about conversion and acceptance in the text. And so there we are. Both the Old Testament and the New speak a word to all of us. To the marginalized, it says, you are not forgotten. And to the privileged, it says, you dare not forget. Let those who have ears to hear, let us hear Amen. Sometimes I wonder where I've been, who I am, do I fit in, make believe in, it's hard alone. Out here on my own We're always proving who we are Always reaching 
for that rising star to guide me far and shine me home out here on my own when I'm down and feeling blue I close my eyes so I can be with you oh baby be strong for me baby belong to me help me through help me need you until the morning sun appears making light of all my fears I dry the tears I've never shown out here on my own But when I'm down and feeling blue I close my eyes so I can be Let me introduce our next guest, Alicia T. Crosby. She is a, a justice educator, activist, and sometimes reluctant minister whose work addresses the spiritual, systematic, and interpersonal harm that people experience. Through her teaching, writing, speaking, and space curation, Alicia helps individuals, communities, and institutions explore and unpack topics related to identity, inclusivity, journey, and intersectional equity. Please welcome Alicia. getting to where I don't want to be held in confines of walls holding up steeples when I worship you because they limit me. I feel more at home on streets with knee bowed and hands lifted to open sky praying for those in pain. 
in upper rooms in the midnight hour speaking of you and your mercies. On subway platforms smiling at strangers and speaking, your, speaking to your beloved who find themselves like the son of man with nowhere to lay their heads. In moving vehicles, supplication offered as my Bible lay open before me with pen in hand. Perhaps that's what John felt like. Maybe he loved wilderness because it was easier to hear you in the desert than through the noise of the temple. And those that followed him, maybe they found family on the banks of the River Jordan. Maybe they felt like they belonged for the first time amongst the community of the marginalized and brokenhearted who waited on the promise of a Messiah. And maybe these are the feelings that led Mary and the Twelve to the wild places. Desperate love tethered them to love clothed in flesh in good times and bad over miles and seeds from the grave to the mountain. They followed you, then chased. They chased you beyond Jordan and Judea to the outermost parts of their worlds and beyond. Seeing your face does that. Feeling your presence puts hands to flight in writing and lips to cry out in speech because you are he who is I am and nothing is sweeter than knowledge of you. Nothing compares to this freedom. So I will seek my place where your spirit dwells, whether it be in wide open spaces under cloud-filled skies or in the walls that squeeze me at times because where you are is my home. So I wrote that piece back in July of 2013. I was 27 and I was in a place where I was longing for more than what church, which congregational space had to offer me. And so, like, I jokingly call myself ecumenically promiscuous and that I've been around the church. Um, and I was super, super open to types of churches. And when I say super open, I am the product of the Black Baptist Church, but I've also been in evangelical spaces. I've been in Pentecostal churches, Anglican, Nazarene, Reformed, Evangelical Covenant, Methodist. And I'm telling you, I've been around, I've been around. And even in being in all of these different spaces, I just felt like I didn't fit. I felt so limited. I felt limited by the gender constraints where people are telling me in spaces that I can't pray for people based on the fact that their gender differs from my own. Like that was just like bizarre to me. Like what? Someone needs prayer and I can't pray? Okay. I felt limited because of how communities were orienting themselves, where people stood in front, I mean, kind of like I'm doing right now, but where they stood at a dais, sat at a dais, and they talked at people instead of speaking with them. And yeah, it was just confining and limiting, and I longed for more than I was seeing in front of me. And so the day that I wrote this was the day that I decided to step out into, the, into what was unknown to me, to find God and maybe find people who value the things that I valued and longed for the things that I longed for. And so that place of unknowing, like that's what the wilderness is to me. It's a place that's unknown to you. It doesn't mean that it's uncultivated. It doesn't mean that it's uninhabited. Life sometimes requires that we step out into places that are unfamiliar in order to get a sense of who we really are, what we desire, what we're made of. We need to get a sense of what we believe, who we desire to be, how we give and receive love. And some of us 
can't ask questions that'll unlock the door to these truths unless we step out from what's comfortable and what's known to us. Others of us don't even get the option of choosing to ask because the very nature of our beings and identities pushes our communities into their own set of questions and they'd rather push us out or work to silence us than have to ask some really hard things of themselves, their beliefs, and how equity, power, justice, and access function within the spaces they inhabit. And so, at some point, some of us will find ourselves on the outside. The things that push us out may break our hearts, and if no one has said it before, I want y'all to know that it's okay to feel however you feel here. If you're angry, be angry. It's okay to be angry because you saw incongruence between people's beliefs and their actions. When people are talking about they love you and they force you out, it's fine to be upset. If you're frustrated, because what was home for you wasn't secure for you or for those you cared for, and divesting is the best option, it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to lament. I don't think we talk about this enough in our culture. Like what it means to grieve, what it means to lament, what it means for like our, our hearts to be broken and to sit with that, that pain. But sometimes when the places and people you love, like when you've had to leave them, when they're unfamiliar to you, when you can't be there anymore, it's okay to lament that, it's okay to grieve it. It's okay to grieve the relationships that are lost. It's okay to lament the things that you genuinely valued about these spaces and these people. It's okay to lament having to, to say goodbye to that, even if it's only for a season. It's okay to take pause and feel however you need to feel when you find yourself having to leave spaces in order to find yourself, to find God, and to find out what matters to you so that you can actually live and not merely exist. I speak from a place of knowing because the day that I wrote this, that day, July 2nd, 2013, like something snapped in me. I remember exactly where I was. Like, I, like, when I was reading the poem, like, it took me back to the place. So I, like, New York is my hometown. So I'm from Queens. I was walking down Horace Harding Expressway towards Junction from my grandmother's house. And part of the reason why that memory is just so clear, I mean, I can see it in my mind, even as I'm speaking now, is because that was the day that I decided that I was gonna live my life in a way where I loved God and loved people in ways where they felt my love. I made up my mind that I was willing to be done with institutional spaces that created barriers to that love and to the justice that that love should inspire. I say should because it doesn't always happen. And so for the last seven years or so of my life, I've kept to that. And as a result, I know myself, I know God, and I know the world in some really tender and incredible ways. It hasn't been easy. Like sometimes like we're in a space where people will like glorify or like speak to like the wonders of the freedom that you find outside of like institutional spaces, the, the freedom that you find outside of congregational spaces. It hasn't always been easy. I found my people and I've lost some of them. Being on the outside of systems means that I felt the harshness of reality of seasonal shifts in ways that I didn't when I was cocooned, with, cocooned within institutional spaces. 
Sometimes I've faced profound, profound loneliness because I saw and felt things that others didn't because my being rooted in wild spaces meant that my perspective and orientation to the world positioned me to witness what was obscured for others. But all that being the case, all that being said, leaving systems, specifically leaving the congregational church was one of the best things that I've ever done because it freed me to live and love and even minister, even when it's reluctant, but in ways that are restorative and life-giving for me. So there are some of you in this room, some of you who are watching, some of you who will listen to this later on, who need permission, that you might feel like you need permission to go, to step outside and seek God, to seek yourself, to figure out what you believe and to find community. If you need that permission, here it is, go. Because that impulse that you feel, that longing, that desire, that means that something or someone is out here waiting for you. The wilderness is calling and maybe, just maybe, it'll become a place that you'll call, you'll come to call home. Just like that river I've been running ever since. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living. But I'm afraid to die Cause I don't know what's up there Beyond the sky It's been a long, a long time coming But I know a change gonna come Oh yes it will I go to the movies and maybe shop downtown. But somebody keep telling me, don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, oh, yes, it will. So I go to my brother. And I say, brother, help me, please. But he winds up. He winds up knocking me back down on my knees. Oh, there were times 
I thought I wouldn't last for long But now I think I'm able to carry on It's been a long, long time coming But I know that I know a change gonna come Oh, yes it will This is where we like to take a short commercial break. <laughs> um, just like the folks on PBS. So, we don't have any albums to sell tonight. I think there are some books to sell back there. But, um, but we also want to tell you about upcoming events. Uh, Radical of Live, um, the next Radical Love Live event will be on March 22nd. And this was a, a program about ambiguity and uncertainty. Featured guests will be liturgist and writer Aaron Nequist, musician and teacher Paul Vasile from Music That Makes Community, and other guests to be announced. So mark your calendar, March 22nd, 7 p.m. It will be live streamed, and it will be live streamed. It will be live streamed. And <laughs> The reason I say that is there's so much going on in the cathedral. As you can see, we're in the nave rather than, um, than up in the crossing. So there's a lot of kind of moving parts as the cathedral is being cleaned and the, you know, working on cleaning up the, the pipe organ. So we, we don't know exactly where we will be, but we will tell you. <laughs> so follow us on Facebook or on social media, and that's a good way to find out. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, we also want to take a moment to... Uh, offer uh, opportunity for you to help this program uh, thrive. Uh, as I mentioned uh, in my opening statements, uh, it takes a lot to make this happen, uh, to keep the cathedral open uh, for the evening, for security and everything else to make this happen. So um, if you're moved to help us uh, with a financial contribution, like I said earlier, uh, an easy way to do that is to uh, text to give. Uh, it's a $25 donation. You just text to 52000, and uh, you send that to Blessing, B-L-E-S-S-I-N-G. It's a great way. It comes in, uh, and uh, we appreciate that very much for supporting us. Um, i also like to thank our guest speakers and musicians for being here. Uh, the Congregation Amazing. of St. Savior. And we're not even done yet. That's the <laughs> We have more to go. Um, the Congregation of St. Savior is our uh, partner, uh, ministry and partnership with us on this, mm -hmm. as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine here. Uh, they are the ones that have helped us get this off the ground. This is our second live event. There's also our podcast for you here. Uh, you can see uh, in the uh, program a list of all of the podcasts that Kelly and I have already recorded. Uh, telling a story about why we created Radical Love Live, but also now we've segued into including guests into that. There was the first one that we had was from the first live event uh, with our guest, uh, and you should listen. We called that one the morning after podcast. Uh, we also just recorded one with Alicia, and we hope to do one with John as well, and some others. So you'll find that. But these live events are taking place as well, as uh, Kelly just explained. So... Um, Again, it's because the congregation has been there to help support us in this, uh, this uh, new venture here. Um, and of course, all of our family and our friends and everybody that's here tonight and on there online, thank you so much for supporting us on uh, getting this thing uh, lifted up off the ground. So 
and everybody who brought a friend. Remember, next month when you come, bring more of your friends, and their friends will bring their friends, and that's how we'll grow this thing. Indeed, indeed. So um, with that, this ends our commercial break, and now back to the program. Yes, indeed. Um, next on our in the program is our um, discussion, uh, group yep. conversation. Um, I do want to point out, we're trying out this app where you can text in questions to, um, to our guests, and some of, the, some of them that pop out, we will try to work into our conversation. It's, um, it's again, you text to the number 22333, and it's the, the words that you text are radical love 222. We tried to get it as simple as we could within the app, um, repeating numbers, but then when you do that, you're in the system, and you could, should be able to text us questions, and I should get them on this little iPad that I've been carrying around all night. So hopefully that will work. Feels like we're just, a, just at home, right? <laughs> really big place. So, um, so first off, one of the things that we're talking about today is marginalization. And um, what, are, what are some of the, the main reasons that people are marginalized today? Oh, that's a huge question. <laughs> I can break it down a little smaller. Yeah. Um, and I guess some of the questions are um, around what are some of the barriers that get in the way of creating spaces that are welcoming. Well, I for one don't think we can talk about marginalization without speaking about people's um, relationships to power. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, that's what marginalization is. It's like, it's a restriction to being able to share in power. And because of that, like, you're pushed to, like, the fringes of <coughs> whatever society, group, whatever exists. Um, so, I mean, if we're going to go, like, real basic, I think that marginalization exists because people who have power don't want to share in it and do what they can to create restrictions on other people exercising their power and their agency. Yeah, it is a big, it's a big question. Um, from a psychological standpoint, just a human standpoint, um, there is an innate need uh, in every human being for allies and enemies. And that's true in all cultures through all time. It's one of the reasons actually that, that being a Christian <clears throat> for me is, is so important because I think that we need narratives and we need power outside of our own selves, outside of our, our psyches, outside of our kind of collective tendencies that can help um, be counter psychological to those kind of natural needs. From, but from a spiritual standpoint, or I would say from a theological standpoint, the answer is easy. It's sin. That's the word we use for that. That's the word that Christians have used for why marginalization exists. And if you, if you read, uh, a, there's a great theologian, Miroslav Volf, that says that, that sin it, it essentially is the tendency to eradicate the other rather than to eradicate the tendency in our own heart to commit that kind of evil. And I think that it's very important that, you know, it's not a word that we like to use a lot these days, but it does have a kind of power to it. And I think when we talk about these kinds of injustices of such a large scale, it would do us well as a religious community to recover the power of a word like that. It's, it's interesting to talk about power in terms of, we've talked about political power tonight, and we've talked about power of institutions. Um, in 
you know, what's happening today, and this is something that we, we talked about in our first episode as well, is the decline in religious institutions, decline of, of power, at least in some cases. What is happening to the relationship between political power and religious power right now, as we're talking about institutions? Ah, these big questions. Um, I don't know if power is necessarily being lost, right? Like in terms of even within institutions. Um, I think that power is shifting. The locus of power is shifting. Um, because, I mean, I think when I'm thinking about power, I'm thinking about energy and energy, like if I go back to like, what, seventh grade science, it's, it's there. Like whether it's like lying dormant or it's active, it's still present. Um, and so that power, that agency, like it's still present. It's just like, how is it being utilized like in the moment? Um, but I think if we're going to talk about like how religion and power are functioning in our current moment, I mean, I don't think we can get away from it, particularly from a Christian standpoint, um, because there are a lot of people who are using their power in some very um, unjust, unloving ways. And it creates conditions for harm for other people, both within their tradition, meaning Christianity and outside of it. Um, that's what I got for now. I'm going to make space for other folks to share their insights. I would say one thing, I'd make a, I would clarify something uh, about religious and political power. Nobody really has an issue innately with religious and political power mingling. Uh, if you do, you oppose the civil rights movement. If you do, you oppose every major social justice movement of the modern era, which in some way drew upon a religious power. If you do, you, you, you have a real hard time understanding what Martin Luther King was about, what Gandhi was about, what Mother Teresa was about. The difference is, is what's happening in the United States is not that religious power is fusing with political power. The gospel, whatever it is, is political in nature. It's that it's fusing with partisan political power. And when it fuses with partisanship, when it becomes a part of, of a kind of mechanism within a political system with the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, or whatever other kind of party, now the gospel becomes a handmaiden. It becomes subservient to some other man-made contraption. And that's when things get really, really nasty. Wow. I'd like to push at that a little bit. Yes, please. So I don't think that it's I think that there's danger in universalizing experience and saying that no one has an issue with the way that religious power and political power work together because there are people who have issues with it. Those people oftentimes fall outside of the Christian tradition because if we're going to keep it 100, then we have to admit that there's a way that Christianity wields power in a way that other religions and other traditions and other ways of belief do not in our culture. And so there are people who genuinely have issues with the way that political power and religious power exercise alongside one another. And it doesn't mean that there isn't something generative to when power has come together in the past, but I think that it's, um, it's dangerous, for me at least, to say that no one has an issue with it because then we're telling people stories for them. The, one of the things that we've been talking about is um, institutions that may want to, that may be conscious of the fact that they're marginalizing people and that may want to encounter some kind of change or do something. Do you have any advice for an institution that wants to try to start to undo some of that, some of what they're doing that, that may be marginalizing people? 
I think one of the most important things, and, and, I, and I'll say this from a sociological perspective, is uh, education's important. I think you mentioned education earlier, but I think it is the facilitation of life-on-life -life experiences. Uh, if you take an issue right now like um, LGBTQ plus marginalization, the number one indicator on a survey of what somebody believes about LGBT relationships and marriage is how they answer the question, do you have a close friend or relative who is gay? It is not where you live, how you vote, how much money you make, uh, whether you consider yourself liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, whatever. It is the question of how, do, are you in close proximity? Uh, do you have a face-to-face -face relationship uh, with someone who is a part of this outsider community? And I think that our churches, I know this happens a lot, and I'm not knocking mainline Protestantism, I'm not <laughs> knocking the Episcopal Church even, but some of the, the, some of the communities that I think most often speak out against marginalization are some uh, communities that when you walk into them, everybody sort of looks the same. And they're, they're doing a good job of educating, right? There's, there's a kind of aural... Uh, uh, educational mechanism that, that, that uh, proliferates in these communities. But in terms of facilitating actual life on like transformative uh, experience, enfleshed, incarnated experiences, they don't do so well. And then they wonder why, why the society is not changing as quickly as they would like it to change. So I, I tend to think that at least the way the data bears it out, getting people in a room with other people to dialogue, to listen, to hear stories, to be transformed by those stories is incredibly important. And I'll piggyback on that because I think that relationship building is definitely critical in that work. Um, when people want to stop engaging in like in harmful practices that are marginalizing. And as someone who's like work deals with helping people like exist in space um, and talk across lines of perceived difference, it's incredibly difficult because like you have to sit with some hard realities like when you convene these spaces. And I think it... I think it makes sense to say that it's not just that people need to position themselves to um, listen, it's that they need to like assume a posture of like being inquisitive. Like people have to be in a position where they're willing to ask questions and then continue to ask questions because as more people come into the community or as people just change and evolve, that community is going to shift and like you run the risk of continuing to be marginalizing if you ever stop asking questions, whether those questions are around need, whether around the perspective, whether around desire, like if you don't ask and continuously make it the practice of asking, which means, honestly, some people have to like learn to be quiet. Um, mm -hmm. If you're not inquisitive, if you don't cultivate a culture where people can consistently ask and stay curious about one another, you're gonna be marginalized and you're gonna push somebody out because you're gonna not make room for their voice to enter into the space. It's interesting that you talk about the need to be consistently inquisitive, that there isn't, it isn't just like we had the meeting and we, you know, we had our listening session, we did our market research, and then there's a, a set solution after that. You don't ever arrive. And I think that that's one of the common misconceptions about work around inclusivity or equity. Like you don't arrive, like you continue to work towards. And the moment you feel like you've arrived, you need to start asking a new set of questions because there's somebody whose identity maybe doesn't have language built around it, at least in public discourse, that'll come into the fold. And in order to like embrace them fully, you need to ask again. Wow. Yeah. Got to keep it, keep it moving and keep it alive. Mm -hmm. 
So we have a few more minutes left here. Do we have any questions that came in from the audience? Um, I'm not seeing any here. I hope okay. it's not. All right. So I'm going to toss out a couple of words. You touched on one. You just said it. In, uh, inclusion. Um, but what about reconciliation? That's a word that's thrown around a lot right now. What's your thoughts on that? I have lots of thoughts on reconciliation. Um, I'm not a fan of it. I'm not a fan of the term. Um, because oftentimes people are asking folks experiencing marginalization, particularly like racial and sexual and gender minorities, to reconcile with people who have done them harm. But like to reconcile means to go back. What are we going back to? <laughs> Seriously, what are we going back to? When we talk about reconciliation, like what is the point where things were good? And so that's where I personally struggle with reconciliation. And I know that it's a word, particularly within religious spaces, that has a lot of power and has a lot of meaning to people. Um, but I personally struggle with it because I want to know what are we working towards. And oftentimes when people speak about reconciliation, they don't have a response. I'm not going to say that they don't have an answer. Or like, but people have like what they think is the answer. And it's, yeah, it's just not something that, for me personally, has a lot of utility. I probably have a little more space for it, but I will say with an with an an, an asterisk because well, first of all, I, I I personally don't think of reconciliation as going back, or if that case if that's the case, I, I'm not I'm not about that either. I mean, this sort of golden era uh, perspective on American culture to me is is uh, mind boggling, uh, but. I see it as a coming together of things that are separate that shouldn't be separated. And, and I, I see this uh, in, in a lot of areas in American culture right now where people are so far apart and so separated and, and I, I, I crave to see a bringing back together. However, uh, what I find that reconciliation can be what, a, what psychologists call spiritual bypassing. Right, it's a way to make yourself feel good, but you never did the work that made it possible. And there are a lot of people out there. I know there are people who, who've been hurt uh, in marginalized communities that they're not ready to reconcile. And it's actually another form of violence to then force those people to the table using moral language to guilt them to say, if you don't come together with me, the oppressor, the abuser, the marginalizer, then you're not being Christian enough, good enough, religious enough, uh, uh, righteous enough. And sometimes it's, it's okay for a person to say, I can't come back together with you right now. What you've done, you've torn us apart too far. The chasm is too far. And so um, sometimes I think reconciliation can be wonderful. Sometimes I think it's just, it's just not possible. And I think that, like, to, to build on what you're saying, that, that work that people who are abusers and who are oppressors need to do, like, it, it needs to actually be committed to. It can't be performative. And I think that that's something that I see a lot in the world right now. Like, folks, you know, they learn the language, right? It's like, here is, you know, the lexicon of words I'm supposed to, like, access to, like, sound woke. No. <laughs> like, I, I want to be woke. I want to be down. But, like, have you actually, like, named your complicity in the harm of others, both systemically and interpersonally? Like, people don't like naming this. We talked a little bit about this on the, the podcast that we recorded for this week. But people don't like to name their complicity in harm because they got to hold it. They got to hold the discomfort and, like, those icky feelings that exist when people have experienced violence at their hand, that's hard to deal with. But you know what? It's hard for people to experience that violence. So yeah, maybe you need to hold this. Yep, that's right. And naming is one of those things, like if you think about a building, right, and reconciliations like floor seven, and maybe you never get there. 
naming is a floor in, but you have to pass through all these floors. And what I find is, is that people in power, people who have privilege, and, I, and in many ways I count myself among those people, the tendency among people with all the power is to say, let's just go to floor seven, because then I feel better, and, but we didn't do any of the work to get there. We didn't earn it. That's the hard work, right? That, that, that's the tough work for people on the side of the table holding all the power. And so for me, oftentimes, what we call reconciliation is, is bunk. It's not reconciliation. It's, it's sort of a, a, a mechanism to self-soothe someone who's often done a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Wow. All right. So I'm sure we're wrapping up. I, I see this. Um, let's just bring up something that came up in the last episode here real quick. Um, when we were talking about people leaving institutions, some of the audience members told us that they left our event feeling a sense of hopelessness. And certainly that's not the reason why we're doing Radical Love Live. So, you know, let's be clear about that and open up. Tell us what you feel as we wrap this up. I feel hopeful. Um, Because I know that there are a lot of people who do feel hopeless because they feel like they're the only ones who think a certain way or who have had a certain set of experience. And I think as conversations like this happen um, through Radical Love Live and through other like people who are convening gatherings around podcasts, around videocasts, around online communities, like what have you, there's an opportunity for people to feel a little less alone like when they hear stories, when they hear different perspectives, um, perspectives that actually align with their own that they don't necessarily hear like within their houses of worship or in the communities that they're currently in. And that's part of why like in the 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 talk that I gave today, like I wanted to speak about like personally making the choice to root myself in the wilderness and in wild spaces because there's a lot of freedom that comes for me in that. And I wish that I would have known someone way back when, seven years ago, who would have let me know that like it was possible to live and to have like a fruitful, faithful life outside of a congregational or institutional space. And so, yeah, as we continue to have these conversations, like I do feel hopeful because those of us who are seeking community, even when we're not in walls like these, will find each other. I'm, I, I, I'm, I have a mix of feelings. I'm not, I'm not hopeful with the present um, because look, look at how many people are in this room and then turn on Fox News and see how many people show up for, for a Trump rally. Um, the, 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 the center of gravity in, in society right now is not with us. It's just not. Um, and if you, if you uh, can't acknowledge that, you have to wake up. Uh, there's a lot of really bad stuff happening right now. And yet, uh, I think that uh, you have enough view of history that you can see that, that things come in waves, right? That, that something else will come. That, that, that is, you know, as, uh, scripture says that weeping lasts for a night, joy comes in the morning, right? We're in a, we're in a nightfall. 
And uh, the theologian Barbara Brown Taylor says Americans love what she calls a full solar spirituality. Get in the light, talk about love and, and joy and hope, and we would just want to get in the light and stay in the light. And yet there are things that we can experience and learn about God, about faith, about ourselves, uh, both individual and collectively in the darkness, if we're willing to sit there and marinate in it, that we could never learn in the light. And so the question is not just how do we get out of this moment of darkness and how do we get in the light, but oh God, what are you trying to teach us now while the sun is still down? And I think God is trying to teach us some things and I hope that we have ears to hear. I, I do want to, to make note of something. There are some of us who've lived experiences where this kind of moment of like shadow, like we've lived in the valley of the shadow of death because of the oppressions that we've faced. Like we know what it's like to abide here and yet we still have joy. And so part of what my hope is in this moment comes from people who have dissimilar experiences of marginalization and oppression, finding the means to speak to one another because we see how we've endured it. Yes, yes. We can rely on one another. We can build bonds. We can have conversations. We can come together in like complex and new ways that have nothing to do with like the moment that we're in like it sucks but you know the reality is that the world has sucked for a long time for a whole lot of us <laughs> right yeah well and, and, and you're making yeah. you're making a point of a gift that people that marginalized people bring to this conversation and i think that people would do well to listen to us in this moment yeah. because you know i think of the the, the old song we've come this far by faith We've come this far, and so it's time that for those who have not had to deal with the burden of a certain forms of oppression, who are for the first time having to see how hard it is, there's something to be said in, in looking at us, in paying attention to us, to listening when we warn people about things. Um, we've been doing this. And so, yeah, listening, staying curious, and, and being willing to be in community with people might make a difference and help everybody get through mm-hmm. a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. That's uh, a powerful uh, conversation we just had, folks. And um, yeah, thank just, you well, for thank you so much. Right up here, and, and you say you're a reluctant preacher. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we're coming to the close. Um, so we're going to go into meditation. Now, relax for you. any of you who have not meditated. This is not anything that's deep or existential so much. But you may be called to that, actually, because Tosh is going to perform a musical meditation. Just um, I just ask you to sit in the space, be in the moment. Um, for us that are here within the space, it's easy to just keep your eyes open and enjoy what we see inside here, or either behind us, or close your eyes and feel this. But... Take rest into the seat, come into the moment, start to feel just the presence of us all here and what brought us here together, the conversations that we've shared. Maybe close your eyes. And I find it helpful when I meditate as well to plant both feet down solid onto the floor. And the reason why is because I feel the ground underneath. And when I feel the ground underneath, then it makes a connection to all of you. I feel that, right? The stone of this floor. It's made of a lot of the same minerals that make us. Right. We all have it together and we're combined. So we'll sit here and as Tosh takes us into meditation, enjoy the sounds and don't isolate, but welcome the sounds. 
and enjoy. soaring music in a soaring space, right? Hopefully uh, you felt just a little bit inside of that that Tosh just shared with us. So this brings us to the end of our event this evening. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for being here again and not just in the room here, but also those that are joining us online as well. So um, you can check out everything that we have uh, on our website at radicallove.live where you'll find the podcast, the events, everything is in here. So we hope that you'll come back and see us uh, next month on March 22nd in that space as well. Listen for Kelly and I as we're doing podcasts on a regular basis. Uh, We have some exciting uh, interviews coming up here. So Mm -hmm. uh, please uh, do join in on the conversation. And thank you so much to our guests for being here tonight, filling the space with music and conversation and getting our hands dirty in conversation and 
um, and bringing up some of these issues, but also bringing up some hope and joy along the way. So thank you so much. And thank you all so much for being here. Tell a friend, share on your social media. We hope to see you again next month. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Radical Love Live. If you're a first-time listener or you'd like to hear more, you can listen to our podcast archive, including recordings of our live series, on most major podcast platforms. Your support is essential. If you like what you're hearing and appreciate the content of this program, please visit our website at RadicalLove.Live to find out ways that you can help this project with your time and your resources. As always, we'd like to thank our supporters, including the Congregation of St. Savior, as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And we'd also like to thank the Episcopal Church Office of Communication for their continued support. Thanks for listening to Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes.